Well, if you've got your Bible, you might like to turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. In your church Bibles, it's on page 971. Page 971 in your church Bibles, Matthew chapter 6. Verse 25. This is, of course, part of the Sermon on the Mount. If you want a Bible, by the way, just wave your hand and it will be brought to you. Nine, page 971, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, in all his splendor, was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow, is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. In case you wonder about that conference, whether it was a depressing time, it was certainly not a depressing time. It was a very, very challenging and a moving time, but it was a joy-filled time. Father Al-Bazari that I spoke with, uh, uh, told you about just now, he said that he got to the point where at the end he was able to say to these people that, and to his own people in the church, we must forgive because if we seek revenge or if we do not forgive, it perpetuates the problem. But when we forgive, that is the end. And uh, he was able to lift his eyes to the Lord and to Jesus to see him and say to his captors, even while he was going through it, that I forgive you. Now that's an important principle and we'll come to that in just a minute. But this whole subject that we have before us today, handling disappointments and difficulties, is very relevant to us all. From the light-hearted disappointments are less significant. For example, here today, I brought a video to show you. We couldn't get it working. I was deflated because I'd like you to see it. And uh, a few others as well, for that matter. But, but that's totally insignificant, really. doesn't really matter in the big picture. From those light-hearted small things to major, perhaps even life-shattering events. Um, Things like, for example, major persecution that we've been talking about and all sorts of other things. Those things, the whole range of things, we are all prone to them all, disappointments and difficulties. And, uh, you know, human beings, and I think elephants, are the only two animals that cry, if you call us an animal, that shed tears. 
I think that's right in saying that. We shed tears when we are brokenhearted. But the, the, the thing about facing difficulties and so on, th- the issues that we face are really not to do with the event itself, but to do with people. It's when our relationships with people are impacted by these things, etc. Those people might be ourselves, it might be other people, and so on. Now, there are two types of anxiety. That is the feeling that comes from disappointments and uh, difficulties. Two types. There's, first of all, normal anxiety, which can lead to guilt, which is a good thing to have if we've done something wrong. Guilt or anticipation. It's good to have an anxiety when you're crossing a busy road. Otherwise, you might step out in front of the traffic. Or tension. Those who have an artistic temperament often will tell you that if they are to produce a piece of artwork or some particular work, the best time to do it is at the last minute. Everybody else says, why don't you do it earlier? But under tension, artistic people produce the best work. Ask any artist. So that's normal anxiety. But then there is neurotic anxiety, and that neurotic anxiety is destructive. And it comes from distrust of either ourselves or other people or even, in Christian terms, from God himself. Now, many of the passages in the Bible that we turn to, uh, well, we find many passages that deal with this whole business of dealing with um, uh, the the problems that arise from disappointments, anxieties, and difficulties. And Matthew chapter 6 will be the jumping off point. It's certainly the only place we'll refer to, but Matthew chapter 6. 25 onwards. So if you've got it open in front of you. Jesus says in this passage that worrying about things is first of all senseless. He says in verse 26 and again in verse 28, he says, listen, the birds of the air don't worry. The flowers of the field don't worry, but your heavenly Father cares for them. God calls them, so why should you worry about these things? It's senseless. It's also selfish, Jesus says. Because he goes on to say, you say to yourself, what shall we wear? What shall we put on? What shall we eat? And it becomes focused on ourselves. Senseless, selfish. And at the end, Jesus says, it's sinful. He said that when he said, if God closes the the grass of the field and feeds the birds of the air, why do you worry Oh, you of little faith. Simply pointing out, you should be able to trust. That's the opposite of faith, of course, uh, of, of faithlessness. Little faith comes from not trusting. It's a sign of distrust. We don't sing it now, but when I was a child, we, brought, we were brought up with one of those little choruses. We're not going to sing it the half of you could. God is still on the throne and he will remember his own. Though burdens oppress, trials distress us and burdens oppress us, he never will leave us alone. Well, that's the little chorus that we used to sing. And that's when we don't trust that God is on the throne, it becomes sinful. So how do we handle these particular things? Well, first of all, look at the cause of anxiety in these, these verses. First of all, there's food. In verse 25, you five, some people worry about food, whether it's um, the latest diet or your fads and fancies. Ooh, I don't like that. 
You know, all of these sort of things. We can worry about food, says Jesus. Don't do it, he says. We worry about fashion. What shall we eat? What shall we put on? Said Jesus is a cause of worry for some people. Then there's our fitness. Who but worrying can add one hour to his life, said Jesus. By the way, the authorized version says one cubit to his stature. And that can't possibly be the right translation because nobody in their right mind would think of adding 18 inches to their height by worrying. But the, the newer translations have all got one hour to his life. Food, fashion, our fitness, and then the future, he says. In verse 34, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Now in each case, whether it's talking about food, or what we wear, or what we, what we, uh, how fit we are, and what we do with our keeping ourselves fit, all of which are important, of course, and the future. In each case, Jesus uses the word, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry about these particular things. But the reason he does it is because there's not only the thing that causes our anxiety, but the curse that comes from worrying. As I've already indicated in verse 28, he says, Oh, you of little faith. Do you know what Jesus came to the disciples once when they were in the boat in the middle of the night and there was a raging storm and howling winds and they were rowing like mad to get to the shore because they thought they were going to drown and Jesus came to them walking on the water. And as it's recorded for us in Matthew 14, it says that Jesus eventually spoke to them in the boat and said, Why, O oh you of little faith, why did you worry? Again, you see, it was not willing to trust. Actually, he said that about Peter, who got over the side and walked to him, and then eventually Peter put his eyes on the waves and started to sink himself, and Jesus hauled him out and took him into the boat, and he said, why do you worry, O oh, you of little faith? Why did you doubt? So letting our disappointments and our difficulties overwhelm us, it defeats our spiritual life, and it destroys our well-being. And then there's a cure that's mentioned in these verses. First thing is to acknowledge that God is in control. His rule. Verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God. And when we set our eyes on something beyond ourselves, beyond our immediate circumstance, we set our eyes on the kingdom of God, both here and then in his presence, then these problems and difficulties begin to fall into true perspective. And not only that, recognize that God has a plan and purpose for us. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In other words, he wants us not only to have our eyes set on something else, but to live here and now in a righteous way. And thirdly, recognize that God has all the resources given to, to him and he will give to us as and when appropriate. So he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So that's the first thing here. It's pretty straightforward as far as the principles are concerned. But what do we do when and difficulties are on our back? Turn for a second to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, 
1180. Someone's faster than I am. Let's get 1180. Here's what Paul says about it. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now the word anxious there in verse 6 is the same word that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. And now Paul says, don't worry. So what do we do if we are worried, if we are prone to the uh, pressures that disappointments and difficulties bring? Well, he says it quite clearly here. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything. Notice the contrast between the anything and the everything. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer, petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, we don't have time this morning to go into those different words which he uses there, prayer, petition, thanksgiving, and requests, but it would be a profitable thing to do. But we all know that it's referring to different aspects of our praying. We pray about these things. And then uh, it says, when we pray about them, here's the result of it. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. That sounds very, very trite. When you're really up against it and some real problem is, is, is on your back, just to say, well, pray about it and it'll be all right, doesn't seem to make sense. I don't understand how that can possibly work. Well, if you think like that, you're in good company because Paul didn't understand it either. He says, it transcends all understanding. It'll guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, but he says, um, it transcends all all understanding. He didn't understand it either. But he calls us to do that. And when that takes place, the promise is in this passage of Scripture that the peace of God will act like a soldier in a garrison marching up and down outside. It'll guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Our hearts, the seat of our emotions, our understanding what's going on in our mind when you wake at three o'clock in the morning and you're churning over this issue again and again. As we bring these things, recognizing that God is in control, he says the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now when we don't do that, it starts a downward spiral. I read a psychiatrist talking about this a little while ago and he gave five Bs that describe the downward spiral when we cannot trust. Here is the first one, disappointment. Disappointment when things don't work out as we expect. Discouragement then sets in. We're no longer motivated to do anything because your ambitions are not being fulfilled. And then disillusionment, or perhaps doubt, disillusionment. Will anything ever work out again? Here am I, I'm a complete failure etc. Disillusionment. Then depression follows so that we can fail, no longer face the future. By the way, I'm not here talking about clinical depression, which may be a whole other area, and needing the doctor's help because of a chemical imbalance maybe or something else. But we're talking about when we get low and feel depressed. 
disappointment, discouragement, disillusionment, depression, and then finally defeat. Collapse inwardly so that nothing is worth living for. And I'd be foolish if I didn't remind myself and you that in a group this size, there will always be some for whom this is a real, real issue. People for whom, well, husbands and wives that can hardly talk, teenagers that live double lives, one at school and amongst their friends, a completely different life at home, people who've been through problems and difficulties and it still overwhelms them, their eyes still fill with tears after 15, 20, 30 years. When you go out to work in the morning, you can hardly bring yourself to leave the front door and get into your car without bursting into tears. There are always some amongst us in those sorts of categories, and I could go on and so could you. It doesn't matter what you call it, whether you call it stress or depression or pressure, whether you call it suppression or repression or depression or oppression. doesn't really matter. For our purposes this morning, it is simply the pressures of life, the disappointments, the difficulties that overwhelm us. And it doesn't matter whether it's rooted in our personality or our family or our circumstances or our work. Sooner or later, these things will lead to us being defeated, especially defeated spiritually, till we can get to the point like Elijah did when he said to God, I've had enough. He sat down under the tree and he moped and said, I've had enough. I'm not doing any more. By the way, in his case, what he needed was rest and food. God gave him both. Stress can be described in the past, present, and future. In the past, we refer to it often as guilt. In the present, we often refer to it as anxiety. And in the future, we often refer to it as fear. And we all face these difficulties that day, uh, from time to time, and some perhaps more than others. So if we, don't give in to th if we give in to the downward spiral that I've mentioned of disappointment, discouragement, disillusionment, depression, and defeat before very long, we shall be a defeated person and find life so difficult. So what do you actually do? Well, in our praying, you'll probably remember that in Philippians we've just read, Paul says that one of the aspects of our prayer is we pray with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. Prayer, petition, um, uh, with thanksgiving we present our requests to God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul says, Give thanks in all circumstances. And the fact is that thanksgiving is an antidote to disappointment. For example, I was disappointed that I wasn't able to show that video. But if I can get to the point where I say, I've done everything I can, Alan's done everything he can, but we couldn't make it work, then we can get to the point and say, thank you, Lord, for helping that. It obviously was not your purpose and will at this time. Hard to do it, but that's the point we need to get to. So that Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances. And it's not a matter of feelings, so we give thanks, that I feel I want to give thanks, but it's the act of giving thanks. They used to have an old-fashioned song that said, count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Again, you're not going to sing that one. Turn to Psalm 73 for a second. Psalm 73. 
Psalm 73, very middle of your Bible. If you're still looking for that, is uh, on page 586, says my assistant down here. <laughs> this is, says, a psalm of Asaph. Now, Asaph was no mean person. He, he, he was the leader of the worship of God in the tabernacle of God. His job was to combine an orchestra of about 130 people and a big choir and to bring psalms and praises on the Sabbath day and lead the people of God in worship on the Sabbath day. So he was an important person, Asaph was. But he gets to the point where he says this. Verse 2, As for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Then he goes on to speak about what he saw in these wicked people. Verse 3, he speaks about this being unjust. Why should they be prosperous and I'm not, is what he's saying. Verse 4, he talks about them having no struggles, but he had plenty of them. Of course, he says here, they have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong. That must be an exaggeration, of course, because everybody has some struggles, but that's how he saw it. Then he talks about the burdens he had to bear. They're free from burdens, common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. Then he speaks about a lack of benefit from living uprightly. That's verse 13. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. In vain I've washed my hands in innocence. And goes on about that. And then verse 16, his inability to find an answer to all this. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to root. And goes on about it. All these problems and difficulties. He's on that downward spiral. But then something happens. Se then something changes. And it changes in verse 17. I thought like this, he said, until I entered the sanctuary of, the, of God and I understood their final destiny. When I then was able to lift my eyes beyond myself and my problems and ha poor little me, when I was able to do that and lift my eyes and see the end, that these people who are so wicked, their end, separated from God, then was able to come back to praise to God, to praise to God and thank God. And he finishes this psalm speaking about God being faithful and solemn. In other words, he got his difficulties, doubts and depressions into perspective when he realized that what he saw, what he touched, what he felt was not all there was. As long as he kept his eyes on himself and his problems and his difficulties, he thought, well, he should be free from it all. And it led to defeat. But when he got an eternal he lifted his eyes and began to say, this will soon be past. Like that fellow I was talking about in Iraq. When he began to say, to say was able to say to these people, listen, this is for you the end if you kill me. But for me, it's just the beginning. Then he was able to overcome. Psalm 34, turn back to Psalm 34. Here's King David writing this psalm. Uh, the, pa the background to this psalm is that uh, a teenage boy comes into camp in Israel and there's this great Goliath fellow who he had to defeat and he killed him, etc. And he became the hero of Israel and then Saul, the king, turned against him and began chasing him everywhere because he was, David was getting more plaudits 
and applause from the people than he, the king, was. And he didn't like it one little bit. And eventually David was on the run and David's life was threatened, etc. And eventually, to cut a long story short, David's faith gave way. And his faith cracked. And he went to Abimelech, the high priest, and he told him a whole list of lies. And he conned the priest into giving him the showbread, the ceremonial bread that was kept there in the, the ark. And he persuaded the priest to give him Goliath's sword that they had kept in the linen cupboard, in the cupboard that they had, had there at the temple. And then he went on the run. Again, having had something to eat, David went on the run again. And he went down to Gath. Of all the places, a stupid place to go was down to Gath because that was a Philistine town and it was the Philistines who were after him. But that's what he did. He went down to Gath where he thought to himself, Saul will never find me here. But he found himself out of the frying pan and into the fire. And he didn't know what to do. And again, to cut a long story short, eventually he had to flee, went down to the desert and there... He gathered a, f a rabble group of rebels around him, terrorist types around him, and sat down in the cave, as it says, uh, um, it tells us in the scriptures, he sat down in the cave, and then he sang this psalm. We know that it's at that time, because the heading of the psalm reminds us that it's when he pretended to be mad before, King Ab uh, before Abimelech, and uh, he left. And it's, he starts this psalm like this. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. I sought the Lord and he answered me, verse 4, and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their voice faces are never covered with shame. Verse 10, the lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord as he gathers these men around him. Having been through all of that, he turns his face back to God and he says, from now on, I'm going to praise God in every circumstance. I will give thanks in all circumstances. And though I cannot understand, though I cannot see, I will learn to praise him in every situation. And that was the key to David beginning to walk in triumph again. And uh, it's not the easiest thing to learn, but it's the lesson that we need to learn as Christians if we're going to deal with the disappointments and anxieties. But now let's finish by being very practical. It's never the tensions themselves, the disappointments, the difficulties themselves that cause the problems, but it is our reaction to them. How we react to them is the issue. The difficulties we face will either make us better or bitter as Christians. They will either deepen our walk with the Lord or destroy our walk with the Lord. If we misunderstand our advers uh, adversities, we will end up blaming others. Other people blame the church, blame the gospel, blame God himself for the way we're facing difficulties. But get it into perspective by lifting our eyes and beginning to thank God for the blessings that he get, he's given us. We recognize that we do not know all there is to know. We only see a very little bit. And in the midst of a great difficulty, 
we, sh we should learn, it's hard to learn, but we should learn to come to God and say, thank you, God, that you're in control. I do not see the way forward. I do not understand, but I am willing to thank you and I am willing to trust you. And whether we see it in this life or not until the next, we will find that God has a higher purpose. Great to sing that song that reminded uh, of us of that this evening. Take, for example, Job. First two chapters of the book of Job about God calling Satan into the into his presence saying what have you been doing and Satan said I've been going to and fro on the earth causing as much trouble as I can and God said well have you considered my servant Job the most he shuns evil he fears God Satan said well of course he does you put a hedge around him you protect him that hedge away and he and let me attack him and he will curse you to your face and God says alright I'll take the hedge away that's the first two chapters of the book of Job. Unfortunately, Job didn't know chapters 1 and 2. He only came in in chapter 3. When the, enemy, when the servants came in and said, have you heard what's happened? He said, what happened? He said, all the flocks and herds, all your wealth has been taken by the enemy. And hardly had that finished when another group of servants came in and said, have you heard what's happened? Your sons and your daughters were having a party. The enemy has attacked. They've all been slaughtered. And then his wife turned against him and began to say, if you were pleasing God, Job, this wouldn't have happened to you. And then he lost his health and he went to, had to go and live outside the city on the rubbish tip where we read that the dogs came and licked his sores and he spent his time scratching his sores with a bit of pottery from the, from the rubbish tip. And then we have 39 chapters of three friends coming to Job. Most of it's nonsense. We know it's nonsense because God says so at the end of the book. And they said to him, if you were pleasing God, this wouldn't have happened. If God was kind, he wouldn't let this happen to you. What have you done, Job, to bring this on yourself? Now this is the bit, the important thing. Job says, if I look forward to find God there, I can't see him at all. I look behind me to find him, I can't see him. I look to the left, I can't see him. I look to the right, I can't see him. You ask me where God is in all this mess, I haven't the faintest idea. Then he adds, nevertheless, he knows the way that I take. And when I come through, I shall come through like gold that's been refined in the fire. You know what happens with gold? They put it in a crucible and put heat under it. And the heat brings the dross to the surface eventually. And the, the refiner skims it off. And more heat and more pressure and more dross is skimmed off. And that continues until eventually the refiner can look into the crucible and see his own reflection. Then the job's done. The fact is, you see, there are times when we simply do not know what God is doing in our lives. We have no idea. And if you were to ask, we have to say, I don't know what God's doing. All I've known is disappointments and anxieties and problems and difficulties. But you see, we don't know what God is doing. Like Jeremiah of old. Jeremiah was called to preach during 40 years, for 40 years, never to hold back, never to stop, but God said to him right at the beginning, when you preach, nobody's going to take any notice of you. Don't bother to pray for the people, because I won't listen to your prayers. And if Moses and Samuel were to come back and pray for the people, I wouldn't listen to them either. But just keep preaching. And then all sorts of problems piled in upon Jeremiah's life, until eventually Jeremiah, before God, he was complaining and said, God, why don't you please butcher these people? terrible and God says to him Jeremiah if you've raced with men on foot and they've worn you out how will you compete against horses 
if you get tired running in smooth country, level country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? And then he adds later on that there are lions in the thickets by the Jordan. In other words, Jeremiah faced the issue. You may not know what God is doing, but it doesn't mean that God is doing nothing. And when we stand before the Lord Jesus one day, I'm sure that there will time, times when he draws the curtain on one side and said, see that? You didn't know that when you were going through those difficulties, those disappointments, those anxieties, you didn't know, did you, that I was doing that? You didn't know that when you f- your back was against the wall and you thought everything was against you and everybody was against you, and you didn't know what to say when you were asked what God was doing in your life. You didn't know that I was doing that, did you? And I think on that occasion we shall say, thank you, Lord, you didn't give it to me easy. Thank you that you allowed me to go through the disappointments and the difficulties and the anxieties of life. Because now I can see what it's about. Sometimes God allows us to see that while we're here on earth. But as we set our eyes on things above, not on the things of the earth, we shall find that God has a bigger perspective, a much bigger perspective in our disappointments and anxieties. So that what we face is no longer the big issue that clouds our life, leading from disappointment right down to defeat. But it'll be something we can say, I don't understand it all, but I'm willing to leave it in God's hands. It's a lesson that we all need to learn and all find difficult. But it's the message that runs right through the Bible from beginning to end, that God has a plan and purpose and he will fulfill his purpose in our lives as we learn to trust in him. Let's just pray together, shall we? Habakkuk chapter 3 says this, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, Though the olive crop fails and the trees produce no food, though there were no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on to the heights. Heavenly Father, you know our humanity. You know our weakness. You know that we're all prone to succumb to disappointments and difficulties. But we pray that you will help us to gain an eternal perspective in the pathway that you've called us to. Whether it's in the major issues such as persecution that we've mentioned today or in small things the failure of something we've planned or the unkindness of someone near us. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you will help us to set our sights on things above, not on the things of the earth. So will you please lead us and guide us so that we might live for the praise of your glory and help us day by day to trust, to trust, to trust in our God who does all things well. We pray in his name. Amen.